Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Hi, this is Michaela Tendera, the host of Behind the Money. I want to introduce you to another great podcast from the FT called Tectonic. It's a show that explores how technology is changing the world for the better and for the worse. The latest series takes a deep dive into crypto land and the recent boom and bust cycle in the crypto markets. It's called A Skeptic's Guide to Crypto, and it's hosted by FT columnist Jemima Kelly. The episode we're dropping in your feed today is episode two on the storied VC firm Andreessen Horowitz and their recent pivot to Web3. Hope you enjoy the show. Hi, I'm Jemima Kelly, your guide on this journey through the fantastical kingdom of Cryptoland. And I have a question for you. What's the difference between believing in crypto and joining a cult? Crypto seems to me like the monetary equivalent of the Heaven's Gate spacecraft that was supposed to transport all those followers to the kingdom of heaven. When people engage in crypto, it is not the way that they engage in any other hobby. The beliefs in crypto are quite extreme and very absurd. At this point, it's like bordering on denying reality. This is Tectonic from the Financial Times. And in this series, I've been asking why people believe in a future for cryptocurrencies and the blockchain. For many people, crypto is simply all about making money. Getting rich quick by betting on the crypto markets or shilling the tokens they say will power their latest blockchain-flavoured invention. But it didn't start quite that way. And for many people, crypto and in particular Bitcoin, is about much more than that. You see, Bitcoin is an ideology, a quasi-religion that casts the development of this cryptocurrency as a history-changing event. You might remember Bitcoin's super gambler, Michael Saylor, in episode one, telling us that Bitcoin is an instrument of economic empowerment for the world, a tool for freedom and truth and justice. That's the thing about Bitcoin. It's a belief system with its own commandments and taboos. So what do Bitcoin evangelists believe in? And why do they believe it? This is episode four, The Church of Bitcoin. To understand just how big a part mythology and an almost religious fervor play in Bitcoin. Let me start by telling you its origin story. It starts on the 31st of October 2008, Halloween. The world is in the grips of a crippling financial crisis. People are rethinking the whole financial and economic system, and the greedy bankers are the lowest of the low. And then someone calling themselves Satoshi Nakamoto sends out an email. I've been working on a new electronic cash system that's fully peer-to-peer. -peer. 
with no trusted third party. The email lands with subscribers of the cryptography mailing list, an email group made up of a few dozen researchers and enthusiasts who are interested in some of the geekier aspects of the world of cryptography. The message was brief and matter-of-fact, a short description and a link to a PDF file. The file outlined an electronic cash system that Satoshi Nakamoto called Bitcoin. A purely peer-to-peer -peer version of electronic cash would allow online payments to be sent directly from one party to another without the burdens of going through a financial institution. This wasn't the first attempt at creating a decentralized digital currency, and initially, the idea didn't get much traction. But over the next two years, Satoshi Nakamoto kept developing Bitcoin, releasing updates to the protocol, replying to emails on the mailing list, and posting on message boards. Usually, there were questions about bugs or potential problems with how the system worked, fixes to the coding, that kind of thing. And occasionally, there would be discussions over the value of creating Bitcoin in the first place. You will not find a solution to political problems in cryptography. Yes, but we can win a major battle in the arms race and gain a new territory of freedom for several years. The real trick will be to get people to actually value the Bitcoins so that they become currency. I would be surprised if 10 years from now we're not using electronic currency in some way. If enough people think the same way, that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. But later, as Bitcoin began to catch on, Satoshi had to worry about how to present the concept of Bitcoin to the wider world. Sorry to be a wet blanket. Writing a description for this thing for general audiences is bloody hard. There's nothing to relate it to. Satoshi even had to worry about marketing issues, like how to make Bitcoin look like a legitimate currency. How does everyone feel about the B symbol with the two lines through the outside? Can we live with that as our logo? Now, throughout all of this, the real identity of Satoshi Nakamoto remained a total mystery. No one knew who it was. Was it a pseudonym? Was Satoshi even a man, as the name suggested? Or could it be a woman? Maybe a group of people? And then, in December 2010, barely two years after that first email, Satoshi Nakamoto stopped posting. The inventor of Bitcoin vanished into thin air. What makes the story even more intriguing is that by the time Satoshi disappeared, this mysterious inventor had amassed a fortune in Bitcoin. And to this day, not a single one of those Bitcoins has ever been spent. It's like a Jesus-style myth where Satoshi sacrificed himself or herself by leaving the project and spurning the immense wealth that Satoshi had accumulated, right? About a million coins. So what is that, $20 billion? Nick Carter there. He's a prominent crypto investor. He says the story of Satoshi disappearing and not cashing in his wealth has taken on an almost religious aura that makes Bitcoin not just another cryptocurrency, but special, a sort of chosen one. There's a notion of like, and very explicit within the Bitcoin community of Satoshi literally sacrificing themselves for our sins, basically creating this new independent system that's free of this, the sin of fiat and uh, creating a new pure system that you're welcome to join. There's also, if you want to go further back in mythology, you could say it's a Promethean story, right? Where Satoshi 
did this daring act, stole uh, fire from the gods, stole monetary policy from the Fed, and then was punished for it for all eternity. In this case, Satoshi's punishment was not being able to <laughs> benefit from all the Bitcoins that they created for whatever reason. So the mythology there is very significant. We'll come back to Nick a little later. But first, let me introduce you to another person who, at one point, truly bought into that whole Bitcoin ideology. When I was at school uh, studying math, I had an, already an interest in economics. I had an interest in philosophy uh, and political science. At the time, Bitcoin was kind of having its you know, second or third big public explosion. Several years after Satoshi's original email, Aviv Milner was a student living in Vancouver in Canada. I was very prime for that pitch because it was a pitch that essentially said we can use computer science and math to solve economic and political philosophy problems and we can solve almost all the problems. And that was really exciting for me. Aviv discovered an online community of Bitcoin enthusiasts who believed that Bitcoin had the power to change the world. As well as getting stuck into the tech behind Bitcoin, Aviv started delving into its ideology too. He came across a document written in 1993 by a computer programmer called Eric Hughes. The document was called the Cypherpunk Manifesto. Cypherpunk is this kind of uh, rebellious, anti-government philosophy. It starts by saying that privacy is necessary for an open society in the electronic age. And then it goes on about why privacy is so important and why we must resist government oppression and tyranny and why money must also be private. That's the root of e even folks like Satoshi Nakamoto, who, who created Bitcoin, was this tool to regain personal liberty and freedom, to transact as one sees fit, to transact privately and anonymously, to send money anywhere in the world. And the idea that decentralization is key, such that the system itself could not be corrupted and could not uh, censor any one person. Aviv started chatting to other Bitcoiners on the online forum Reddit. He went to Bitcoin conferences. And he started buying Bitcoin because he genuinely believed that it could be the future of currency. I was pushing people to spend their Bitcoin, pushing people to learn about Bitcoin. It's, it's super reliable. It's awesome. The, pr the value only goes up. You know, this is going to be great for commerce. For Aviv, mass adoption seemed, well, entirely sensible. So much so that he tried to get local businesses in Vancouver to start accepting payments in Bitcoin. At the time, it seemed obvious, right? Because small businesses pay credit card fees and point of sale fees. So you can build an app for them that will accept Bitcoin and surely users will love it and the store will love it. And so we found a few stores that were willing to do this, to have this Bitcoin point of sale app. But Bitcoin started to become a victim of its own success. In 2017, after a huge run up in prices, Bitcoin's network started getting congested. The cost of making payments was exploding and transactions that were supposed to take 10 minutes were sometimes taking several days to complete. And the result was that nobody used it. Nobody wanted to actually go in the store, like an average, you know, grocery store and pay with Bitcoin. And I just remember laughing really hard, thinking like, none of this was as we told, like it was a faulty product that 
both the user didn't want and the merchant didn't want. The concept failed on all levels. Which is why today, Aviv is no longer a Bitcoin believer. These days, he's gone full Bitcoin skeptic. And that total 180 in the world of Bitcoin it just doesn't happen. Aviv is the only person I've ever come across to have been so invested in Bitcoin, both financially and emotionally, and then to have just abandoned the whole thing. 13 years into this experiment, so far, if I'm being honest, the use case we have is that we made Las Vegas virtually and children can now play in it. That's that to me. That's kind of the biggest use case that I see. Uh, money laundering is another one. Tax evasion is another one. Um, but I can't really see examples where some person, any person, says, "Man, you know, th thank God for blockchain. It's really made my my day better. I can really solve these problems." Like, there's not a lot of problems unless you want to speculate. Aviv was discouraged by Bitcoin's failures. But there are still many Bitcoin believers out there who aren't. It doesn't matter how many times Bitcoin crashes or fails to find a use, they've already decided that whatever the question, Satoshi Nakamoto's great invention, Bitcoin, is the answer. So Bitcoiners basically believe that Bitcoin is the future of money. Sid Venkataramakrishnan writes about banking and fintech for the FT. All other currencies, whether you're looking at fiat currencies or other cryptocurrencies like um, Ether or, or Dogecoin are all at best, you know, sort of scams or at worst, actually detrimental. They're part of a collapsing monetary system, which has been failing for years since the end of the gold standard. Some might say traditional currencies or fiat currencies are going to go into a death spiral of inflation um, and that's going to lead to their replacement by Bitcoin. At some point, it's going to be uh, just the single currency for global commerce, trade, payments. So why do Bitcoiners think that it would be a good thing to have Bitcoin become the future of money? So you have uh, Bitcoin emerging out of this sort of cypherpunk ideology of the, the late 80s and the 90s, this movement against censorship, against um, government controls over digital sort of culture, um, sort of broadly anarchic libertarian ideology. And there's the idea that, that Bitcoin is, is essentially resistant, that it's a form of currency which is not handed out by the government, um, that can be used to purchase things which governments don't always want you to. And, and obviously, you know, the argument which is increasingly made is, is around authoritarian states and where we've seen crypto sometimes being used as a way to circumvent controls put down by governments. So belief in Bitcoin has two basic elements to it. The first is that the global financial system is broken and that Bitcoin is the only thing that can fix it. And the second is even more fundamental than that. Governments shouldn't be in control of money and we need an alternative that's not controlled by any one entity. So are these beliefs, whether you agree with them or not, simply part of a coherent and rational political ideology or is there more to it than that? Is Bitcoin a cult? So it's complicated because it definitely does have cultic properties. You don't have a single leader in crypto anymore because Satoshi decided to step out of the limelight. Um, what you have instead, and this is quite similar to QAnon today, is that you have a lot of high priests or priests of varying values, the influencers who cooperate with each other sometimes, sometimes fight with each other. But it's all about, at the end of the day, you know, driving a message that adoption's coming, sort of believe in my 
personal version of the gospel, subscribe to my channel, etc. There is a morality to it as well. I think there is a lot of that idea that if you are investing in crypto or Bitcoin, you are doing something that is actually morally good. And, and you will, you're rewarded for making the right choice. You know, the whole idea of mining being kind of implying hard work out in a mine rather than, you know, letting a computer do it for you. I think there's a whole whole assumption that what you're doing is a good deed. You know, money is good. Therefore, being rich makes me a good person. Therefore, if you are involved in selling crypto or Bitcoin, if you're involved in promoting Bitcoin adoption, you are good and therefore you're deserving of money. And I think that sort of plays into the whole idea of being kind of rugged pioneers, almost, you know, finding out on on the frontiers of money, on the digital frontiers of money. The precise definition of a cult might be hard to pin down. But for those who study this, the parallels between Bitcoin and recognised religious cults are striking. You can see how this is absolutely something that is isolating people from their systems of support, that's imbuing people with a false sense of elitism, making people feel like the solutions to all of their problems and enlightenment can be found. And if that's not a new religious movement, I don't really know what is. (laughs) Amanda Montel is the author of a book called Cultish, The Language of Fanaticism she knows firsthand about cults. Amanda's father was a member of the Church of Synanon in the 1970s. Synanon claims it's the victim of bad publicity, losing more than $100,000 in grants and contracts. Fewer addicts are being sent there. Parents are disowning their children who live there. Some filing lawsuits, charging brainwashing and torture. And a grand jury is investigating charges of child abuse. Basically, the organization was a drug rehab program turned cult. It was founded 19 years ago by a man named Chuck Dieterich. I'm big brother, I'm big daddy, I'm I'm all kinds of things. Followers shaved their heads, wore overalls, and underwent brainwashing group therapy-like rituals. In a really, really destructive group like Jonestown um, or Heaven's Gate or Scientology, you'll hear a ton of us versus them terminology, really loaded, emotionally charged buzzwords and euphemisms that are there to imbue insiders with this sense of superiority, with this transcendent purpose that just by showing up, you are better than everyone else and you're tapped into an enlightened knowledge The solutions to the world's most urgent problems are laid bare before you. And as long as you align with this group, with this leader and follow all their rules, you know, this can be yours. And Bitcoin follows that us versus them terminology as well, even if it's not dictated by any one particular leader or person. It's like crowdsourced a little bit, but are really there to divide people into an us and a them, special, enlightened crypto people on the inside who understand this language and sort of these unenlightened sheeple on the outside who don't. Amanda says that in the crypto world, that language is particularly evident in the sheer number of acronyms and abbreviations believers use. Which sort of makes the language feel all the more special, also all the more inscrutable. Anyone who's been on a Bitcoin message board or who follows Bitcoin Twitter might have heard of some of these. What's up, you guys? It's Matt here. So I talked about BTD in a number of videos, right? But a lot of people don't understand where the BTD by the dip. Now, Wagme displays a generally bullish attitude toward crypto and NFTs and most commonly used in the context of good news. We're all going to make it or NGMI. 
never gonna make it. Next, hotto, hotto, baby. It's like holding a football. You're holding a football. You're holding that big bag of cash. Hoddle. That one is actually a misspelling, but a lot of people now treat it as an acronym for hold on for dear life. And if you do, your crypto token of choice will go to the moon. And I wanted to follow up today with my next list of five cryptocurrency coins that I think may take us to the moon. And then there's the co-opting of the term FUD. FUD is an acronym for fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Fear, uncertainty, doubt. Which is used anytime anyone tries to challenge the ideology of crypto believers. A crash is normal. Seeing graphs shoot straight down like this is normal. As a way of dismissing criticism. Fear, uncertainty, and doubt is a menace that threatens to reach into your pocket and steal your hard-earned money. Amanda says this is a perfect example of what linguists like her call a thought-terminating cliché. This is a classic cult language technique, and it describes a sort of stock expression that's easily memorized, easily repeated, and aimed at shutting down independent thinking and questioning. So dissent and pushback is obviously the number one enemy to any cultish group. You don't want you know, any wrinkles in your ideology to be pointed out. So whenever anybody expresses any sort of questioning, you're going to need one of these zingy stock expressions to shut them down and to alleviate the cognitive dissonance that they're feeling in that moment. Amanda saw this in action when her dad was a member of Synanon. The group where my dad spent his teenage years, there was this thought terminating cliche that went act as if. Whenever you, you feel yourself doubting one of the leader's protocols, just act as if you believe in his wisdom and eventually you will. Um, you know, I've heard thought terminating cliches show up in QAnon in the form of phrases like trust the plan or I did my research or do your research or don't let yourself be ruled by fear. In new age groups, a thought terminating cliche could sound like dismissing a valid fear or anxiety as a limiting belief. Um, and then there are, of course, thought terminating cliches that are used in crypto. Don't listen to the rumors. They're just spread by FUD. And that's thrown in the faces of anybody who proposes any kind of criticism toward a project in this space. You know, they're a FUD. And again, to make a Scientology comparison, anyone in Scientology who expresses any sort of doubt is dismissed as a, a suppressive, an SP that stands for suppressive person. And so there are parallels to be drawn there for sure. If crypto, and Bitcoin in particular, can be compared to a cult like Scientology, you might think of Nick Carter, who we heard from at the top of the episode, as the Bitcoin equivalent of a suppressive person, an apostate Bitcoiner. It certainly is a secular religion. I mean, there's a whole doctrine of salvation. There is um, absolution. There's even uh, eschatology, I guess, like a day of judgment concept where all the fiats are going to disappear and everything will be subsumed into Bitcoin. Nick runs an investment fund. And for years, he's been an advocate for Bitcoin as an alternative to the existing financial system. But recently, the rest of the hardcore Bitcoin community discovered something about Nick that to them was unforgivable. Nick wasn't just worshipping at the altar of Bitcoin. He was worshipping at the altar of other crypto gods too. And uh, there's a faction within Bitcoin that thinks that you have to pick one side, basically, that you have to 
believe exclusively in Bitcoin, think that all other crypto assets are competing for attention with Bitcoin, uh, that it's a zero-sum game. So it's immoral to create or advocate for or build on top of any other crypto asset. The whole debate is in a moral context. This purist faction that Nick refers to is known as Bitcoin maximalism. And for Bitcoin maximalists, the cryptocurrency you invest in is a moral question because to them, Bitcoin isn't just the best cryptocurrency. It's the only one that's morally good. And everything else, central bank currencies like the dollar and every one of the other 20,000 plus cryptocurrencies out there is morally bad. I was performing a deep moral sin, according to these people. And so I guess a lot of the Bitcoiners got very upset because they realized that a high-profile Bitcoiner wasn't, you know, a Bitcoin Puritan or whatever. Today, Nick no longer worships in the church of Bitcoin. Now I'm a crypto apostate, right? Ethical non-crypto monogamy, right? Um, And so I'm out. um, I mean, I'm still a Bitcoiner, obviously, and they can't really kick me out of Bitcoin. That's not possible. But I'm certainly out of the core circle of hardcore Bitcoiners, which is kind of okay with me because I view their views as really out of step with reality. But Nick does still believe in Bitcoin. And so this is where, in some ways, I think he hasn't truly left the cult, even if he's left the most zealous part of it. Because Nick is still drinking the Bitcoin Kool-Aid to some extent. He still thinks of Bitcoin as a viable solution to the broken global financial system. I do think that the fiat system is degenerate and will eventually collapse. You think crypto might eventually collapse? I think fiat currencies will eventually collapse. Not all at the same time. And I think the dollar will be the last. And so I am searching for an alternative. To me, Bitcoin best instantiates those values that I'm looking for. But it could be something else. If somehow we had reform and we we were able to create uh, or engender a fiat system that didn't lead to rampant asset price inflation, was relatively stable, didn't cause financial crises, then I would probably reconsider. But I don't have any faith in governments to do that. So as we've heard throughout this episode, there is something incredibly powerful about Bitcoin that really draws people in. And I do believe that some Bitcoiners are really in it for reasons other than making money. Even though Bitcoin has failed time and again to prove itself as a valid form of money, it has this mysterious and compelling mythology that makes people still believe that one day it will prove itself as the saviour of the economic system. And in some ways that is understandable, even if it strikes me as quite naive. Who doesn't want to be told that there really is an answer to all of our greatest problems? And in a world where technology has already changed pretty much every part of our lives in ways we couldn't have ever predicted, why shouldn't this technology fundamentally change money too? Is it any wonder that so many people want to be part of something greater than them? Part of a community that gives them a sense of identity and belonging? Amanda Montel says that's why cults keep coming back. 
Cult has also become one of those words that can kind of mean anything depending on the context. You could use it just to describe something as destructive as QAnon or Scientology, but you could also use it to describe, you know, a really popular, beloved makeup brand or wellness product. And um, I think that says a lot about how cultish our culture has become, you know, as we increasingly move away from and mistrust these larger institutions that are supposed to provide us with support and community like the government and the healthcare system and the church. And so we start looking for those things in different places, in alternative places. You know, feeling like you're a part of something bigger than yourself is a profoundly human pursuit. She says that cult behavior isn't intrinsically bad. It's just about identifying which cults are harmful and which aren't. And that might look like, you know, a really passionate music fandom. It's really not about avoiding cultishness at all costs. It's about being aware of some of those signs that this cultish group is more abusive than another. And the problem with Bitcoin is that some aspects of it do sound alarmingly like the bad version of a cult. Back to the former Bitcoiner Aviv Milner. You might ask, well, okay, well, what's the big deal with people identifying as Bitcoiners? The problem there comes down to what you're accepting and how that affects your life more broadly. As an example, people who believe in flat earth often have a very also culty-like behavior where they talk to people, they find groups, they do a lot of weird experiments, you know. But it's surprisingly harmless because when you believe in the flat earth, it doesn't really change your day to day. When you really believe in Bitcoin, you do what the president of El Salvador did or what a lot of middle class people do, which is take all of your hard earned money and put it into a volatile asset that you don't understand and that has so many chaotic things that can happen. And so essentially you're gambling. And the result is that we have an unprecedented level of gamblers, people my age, even younger, you know, people in their 20s. And that is a huge, huge problem. Um, this is not just me disagreeing with someone's hobby. This is me upset about the financial destruction of a growing part of our population, you know, put all their money into these things and then um, in, in many cases lose almost everything. Next week on Tectonic, how crypto took over the US state of Wyoming. The crypto guys were writing the laws. All of these sort of legislators who have been let down this blockchain path, 95% of them, they don't know what's going on. And the political battle over crypto regulation. Washington has just been flooded with crypto money where crypto is trying to buy incredibly favorable laws and regulations to allow them to basically do what they want with as little regulation as possible. You've been listening to Tectonic from the Financial Times with me, Jemima Kelly. Special thanks this week to the FT's banking and fintech correspondent, Sid Venkatara Makrishnan. Tectonic's senior producer is Edwin Lane. Our producer is Josh Gabbett-Doyon, and Manuela Saragosa is executive producer. Our sound engineer is Breen Turner, with original scoring by Metaphor Music. The FT's head of audio is Cheryl Brumley.
Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.